A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of dismemberment and cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. All myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into Cheyenne traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. There was once a small lodge deep in a dense forest, not far from a vast lake. A family resided there, a father, mother, and their two children. They lived away from any neighboring tribe, but they had one another, and so they were content. Or so it would seem. The father, Avonico, was a serious man, with a deep belief in sacred medicine and lore. He loved his wife Shilan dearly, and each day he would cover her with red paint before going out to hunt. This paint was a protective talisman meant to ensure her safety. But one day, Avonico returned from hunting empty-handed. When he laid eyes on his wife, he was shocked to see her red paint was nowhere to be seen. Her tight braids were undone and hung haphazardly around her face. Shalon, where has your paint gone? How can you pester me about that when you bring us no food? Are your children to go hungry again? There was no game to be found today. I looked everywhere and saw nothing. Of course not. Your heavy footsteps send the deer running before you could even hope for a glimpse. Now because of your clumsiness, your family will starve. Avonico bent his head in shame. He was indeed a terrible hunter. So when he returned the next day to find Shilan's paint gone again, he held his tongue not wanting to invite more criticism. Every day that followed was the same. Avonico would paint Shilan in the morning, only to find it gone when he returned. At night, he watched her sleep, wondering what secrets she was keeping. One morning, Avonico painted his wife as usual before taking his weapons and heading out of the lodge. But instead of retreating into the woods, he followed the path to the lake where his wife drew water each day. He hid himself among the muddy reeds and waited. His wife would be along soon, and he would finally know, once and for all, what she was up to. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we're exploring the Cheyenne legend, The Chase of the Severed Head. 
This horror myth focuses on the miraculous power of a young girl whose parents' actions force her from a home she's always known and into the world beyond. The great spirit is in all things. The water we drink, the food we eat, the wind that rustles through the trees, the rain that falls from the sky. The cultures of the Native American tribes are as varied as they are numerous, but the most commonly held belief is that the universe is bound by the power of nature, embodied in the singular great spirit. Their gods are the world around them, the animals, trees, sky, and the earth. Therefore, many of their most important stories center around nature and the mysterious power that dwells there. The Cheyenne tribe historically lived in the Great Plains, on land that is now Oklahoma, South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming. They were and are spiritual, known for erecting ceremonial lodges and hunting game instead of farming. Their connection with the earth is a crucial part of their identity, providing them with sustenance and protection. And few Cheyenne ever needed the Great Spirit's protection so much as the children from the chase of the severed head. Avonico, the father of a small family, was suspicious of his wife, Shilan. He painted her with red paint each morning, but when he returned from hunting, it was gone. His agony over its mysterious disappearance grew, and soon, he acted. He crept down to the edge of the lake where Shilan gathered water each day, and hid amongst the reeds at its shore, waiting for her to arrive. Hours passed, but finally, he heard her approach. Avonico watched as Shilan appeared with a water bucket, covered in the red paint he'd applied. She kneeled at the lake's edge to collect water. He relaxed. It seemed that nothing was amiss, but just as his worry disappeared, it returned as she set the bucket down to raise her arms. Nashue, your vessel is here. Come to me. Avonico watched in horror as the lake's water began to swirl. It rose up, taking the form of a man. <sighs> it was a water spirit, and it was delighted to see Shilan at its shore. It rushed over to the water's edge and immediately wrapped its arms around her. She groaned in pleasure as the spirit licked at her body, removing all the red paint that her husband had so diligently applied. As he watched Shilan in ecstasy, Avonico's face turned hot with rage. His heart thudded in his chest, his hands shook, tightening around the handle of his hunting knife. He had been betrayed, and the shame was too much to bear. Ah! Avonico burst from the reeds, his hunting knife raised, his eyes burned with hatred as his blade slashed through the water spirit's neck. For a moment, its swirling head hovered there, disconnected from its body. It turned to face Avonico. 
and then both the body and head collapsed in a torrent of water, soaking the couple. But Avonico's rage wasn't satiated yet. No! No! Avonico, please! Avonico raised his blade. Shilan did not even have time to scream. He cut off her head with one strong swing. And still, Avonico did not stop. He hacked at his wife's body like a man possessed, cutting away whole limbs and chunks of flesh. In a final burst of fury, he grabbed Shilan's severed head by the hair and flung it in the lake. Take your wife then, spirit! The head bobbed momentarily on the surface before sinking into the lake. As Avonico watched, his rage finally began to dissipate. In its place was a cold, indignant anger. Shilan had shamed him for failing to provide meat for their family, but all the while, she had been betraying him. Well, if she was so concerned about it, let her provide the meat. Back at the family's lodge, Avonico's daughter, Kishori, sat at a window, staring at the lake path. She was a frail girl on the cusp of womanhood, but she was also quite lazy. Her parents took care of everything around their small lodge, and Kishori didn't even know how to do the simplest of chores. Despite her easy life, her face was creased with worry. She had noticed the coldness between her parents and the disappearance of her mother's paint after she fetched water each day. She knew her father could have a temper, and since she was always trying to please him, she'd said nothing to him about her worries. Instead, she waited anxiously for her mother to return home and tend to supper. Her face brightened when at last she saw a figure approaching from the lake path. A moment later, she frowned in confusion. It wasn't her mother, but her father, Avonico, back from the hunt early and carrying a skinned carcass on his back. He entered the lodge and threw the meat down on the ground. Father, you found game. Of course I found game. Has your mother so poisoned you against me? Now, make a fire so that we can feast on this deer. But mother always builds the fire, and she has not yet returned from fetching water. I, I do not know how. Uh, fine! It seems that I must do everything, again. Where is Kakanui? Make yourself useful for once and fetch him. Kishori was caught off guard by Avonico's cold tone. As she scurried outside to find Kakunawi, she could not shake an eerie feeling that a dark change had come over her father. A short time later, the family sat by a fire outside the lodge. Kakunawi, still a young boy, ate his meat happily. He tossed a scrap at Kishori, who glared at him in annoyance. When she turned to Avonico, she noticed he wasn't eating. Why do you not eat, father? I want to be sure there is some left for your mother when she returns. Where could she be? She has been gone far too long. It is not your place to worry. Wherever she is, I am sure that she has a good reason. But it is dark out there. 
She might have fallen and injured herself, or what if an animal has eaten her? Oh, did I not tell you that is not your concern? Ungrateful girl! You sit here, eating the meal I have provided, and question what I have told you. I am your father! Kishori's cheeks flushed at the scolding, and she began shoveling strips of the meat into her mouth, desperate to appease her father. Avonico watched her eat, his eyes simmering with cold anger. That night, Kakunui and Kishori went to sleep with full bellies. Avonico lay awake, deep in thought. He had fed his wife to the children, but the eagerness with which they had consumed her flesh had disgusted him. They were lazy, gluttonous, ingrateful beasts, just like their mother. He could not stand to be in the lodge with them any longer. When he was sure they were fast asleep, he rose and gathered his bow, quiver, and hunting knife. Then he slipped through the front door and disappeared into the forest, never to return. When Kishori awoke the next morning, she was surprised to find that her father was gone, but she decided that he must have gone off in search of Shilan. Hopefully they would both be home soon. Kishori's stomach growled loudly. She knew there was a bit of dry cornmeal stored away, but had no idea how to prepare it without her mother. She would just have to wait. A short time later, Kishori busied her restless mind by making moccasins. She used a variety of dyed porcupine quills to weave, a blue quill for one stitch, a red for another, and so on. They were beautiful colors, and sometimes she'd find Kakunui stealing them to play with. Kakunui, How many times do I have to tell you not to play with my quills? Just wait until Mother gets back. What is that sound? I love my children. Hearing her mother's voice, Kishori excitedly ran back to the window, but she saw only the forest. A light wind ruffled the leaves, and a wisp of cloud cover darkened the light around the lodge. The hair on Kishori's arms stood up. Dread gripped her stomach as the wind whipped the trees. Something was wrong. Kakunui's scream cut through the air. He pointed a trembling hand toward the path that led to the lake. Kishori's blood ran cold. Her hand fumbled for her brothers as she stared in disbelief at the thing coming up the path. It was a head, a human head, rolling down the path toward the lodge. Its dark hair whipped up in a heinous halo around it as it tumbled over itself, singing as it came. I love my children, I love my children, but love their mother, they do not. They only like their mother when she's cooked inside a pot. As the head rolled along, the face became clearer. Mother! 
Coming up, the children wish their mother had remained missing. Now, back to the story. Kishori and Kakanawi had grown worried, waiting for their mother to return. They had no way of knowing the truth, that their father, Avonako, had killed their mother and served her flesh to them as food. But even that could not stop Shalon from returning. My children! My children! The siblings stood at the window, staring out in horror. Their mother's severed head was rolling down the path toward their lodge, wailing and coming closer by the second. Without thinking, Kishori lunged toward the lodge door and slammed it shut. Kishori leaned against the door as it rattled. Her mother's head was banging relentlessly on the other side. It is your mother. Mother, I... What happened to you? Let me in. And I will tell you. You're scaring me. Let me in. You sniveling excuse for a daughter. I do everything for you. Everything. And how do you repay me? By eating me. Kishori's mouth fell open in utter horror as the door continued to shake. She closed her eyes and sank to her knees as the accusation rang in her ears. Her mother was certainly dead, and her body was nowhere to be seen. If what the monstrous head was saying was true, then the meat they'd eaten the night before was in fact their mother's body. And Avonico had killed her. Kishori's hands shook and she gagged, her body tensed with its desire to unload the meal it had consumed the night before. The wooden door bent inwards with the force of Shilan's head. It would not last long. Kishori took quick, rapid breaths to gather herself and tried to remain calm. There was time yet to brood on the horrors of what had happened, but right now, she had to move. Brother, gather the quills, my root dagger, and our moccasins. Put them in my satchel. Hurry, Kakanui, you are too slow! Kakanui's tiny hands shook as he collected their things and handed the satchel to his sister. Shilan continued to call from outside. Let me in. You have eaten me. You have eaten me, and I must eat you, my children. I must. Brother, we must run. When I nod, jump behind me and grab my braid. I am going to run, and you must follow. Kakanui nodded, tears streaming down his face as he grabbed her braid. Kishori positioned herself by the quivering door. With shaking hands, she grabbed the door's bolt and flung it open. The siblings stepped to the side as Shilan's head rolled into the lodge. Without wasting a moment, Kishori pulled Kukunui through the door and slammed it shut behind them. They turned and ran. The siblings raced through the forest, not daring to look back. 
An hour passed, and Kakanui grew tired. His small legs could only carry him so fast, and he soon fell behind. Kishori paused, gasping for breath. She had never run so hard or so far, and she was tired as well. She put a hand to her belly, trying to ignore the urge to vomit. It is all right, Kakanui. We will be all right. But despite her words of comfort, Kishori felt nothing but terror and despair. All her life, she had depended on her parents for everything. Without them, she and Kakunui did not stand a chance. My children! <gasps> her terrified thoughts were silenced as Shilan's head rolled into view. She picked Kakunui up, ignoring his cries of fear. As she ran through the trees, the head steadily gained on them. Kishori despaired. They would be eaten by their mother, and there was nothing she could do about it. She longed for the mother she remembered, a kind, generous woman. At the thought of Shilan, a memory sprang unbidden into Kishori's mind. As a young girl, she had been scared of prickly pears. They would hurt her feet when she would walk over them. Shilan would carry her over their thorns and protect her from harm. If only a prickly pear bush would fall into Shelan's path now. With a jolt, she remembered the quills she had brought. She fumbled in her bag until she found them and then tossed them behind her. Ah! Kishori glanced over her shoulder to see if the trap had worked, but her mouth fell open in amazement. A prickly pear bush had sprouted from the ground right where the quills had landed. Shilan was caught, her long hair wrapped around the bush's thorny branches. Kishori didn't know where this magic had come from, but there wasn't time to question it. Shilan was breaking free. Kishori continued to run with Kakunui in her arms. Soon, the head was gaining on them again. Kishori reached into her pack for more quills. She didn't know how, but the mystical power these woods had came to her aid once. Perhaps they would do it again. She tossed a handful of white quills behind her. To her amazement, blueberry bushes sprouted up where they landed. Shilan's head rolled into them, getting caught in the branches once more. This time, Kishori didn't stop. She tossed handfuls of the colored quills over her shoulder. Behind her, she heard the bushes bursting out of the ground and Shalon snarling as she fought her way through them. But Kishori was growing exhausted. Kukunui's head bounced on her shoulder. She knew that he was still too tired to run. Perhaps if she just put him down, she could escape into the woods on her own, but one look at his terrified face filled her with shame. She could not believe that she'd even thought such a thing. She was no better than her father. Children. Kishori stiffened. A strange wind whistled through the trees. It crackled with a strange energy, like the forest itself was speaking to her. Great magic was at work in this forest, and it had already protected the siblings once. 
Kishori thought she would do well to listen to it. She took a deep breath and cleared her mind. For some reason, she found herself thinking of when she was a child. She had once tried to scale a ravine and was unable to get up the side. Shilan had lifted her in her arms and helped push her to the top. Children. Kishori's eyes snapped open, suddenly sure what she had to do. She set Kakunui down and reached into her pack for her root dagger. Then she knelt and stabbed it into the dirt. As she drove the blade deeper, the earth shook. A crack split around the dagger, quickly stretching. Kishori pulled Kakunui back as an enormous ravine was created before their very eyes. She laughed in exhausted relief. Kakunui grabbed her hand and tried to pull her onwards, but she shook her head. No, Kakunui. If we go, she will just find us again. She will chase us until we have no more strength to run. I must face our mother here. Tears sprang to both their eyes, but Kakunui finally nodded, and slowly, very slowly, he lifted his hand to point at the other side of the ravine. Children! Shelan had arrived. She rolled to the edge of the ravine and stopped with her face turned toward them. Her skin was torn from the bushes, and her expression was twisted into a manic grimace. Her bloodshot eyes seemed to stare straight through them. This was not their mother. This was something else. Kishori! Set a stick across the ravine so I may cross. You are no longer our mother. You are trying to eat us. As you have eaten me. We did not know. We did not know what father had done. I know, my child. I was wrong to be angry. Please, help me cross so that we can begin anew. I miss my children. And I know that you miss your mother. You need me. You and your brother. You cannot yet care for yourselves. But, but I do not think you are the same mother that left us yesterday to retrieve water. You have changed. And because you have changed, I have too. You are still a young girl, and your brother is but a child. How would you fend for yourselves out in the world without me? If you let me cross, I will forgive that my body is still in your bellies. Kishori looked between Shelan and Kakunui, then slowly picked up a stick. Kakunui shook his head. He still feared this monster with his mother's voice. But Kishori was only looking at Shelan's head as she gently placed the stick across the ravine. As soon as the stick hit the other side, the head shot toward them. <laughs> Startled, Kishori kicked the edge of the stick from its place. My children! 
The stick fell, and Shallan's head tumbled after it, disappearing into the deep ravine. As it vanished from sight, the earth shook violently as the sides of the ravine moved to meet one another, closing up tightly to trap the head deep within. The siblings stared at the spot where a great chasm had been only moments before. Then Kishori stood, took Kakanui's hand, and led him away. It didn't matter that their father had left them, that their mother had tried to eat them, that she was now gone forever. They would continue onward. They didn't have any other choice. For the next few days, the siblings' hunger grew as they wandered through the woods. Kakanui began to cry and poke at Kishori, desperate for food. She shrugged off his jabs, but she was also growing weak and worried. On the third night of wandering, they heard voices and saw the faint glow of firelight through the trees. The siblings shared a smile and hurried toward it. But as the voices grew louder, they slowed. One voice sounded familiar. Yes, thank you. It has been a difficult time. It was their father. Overcome with relief, the two siblings raced forward. At last, Kishori saw him. Avonico was sitting at the edge of a campfire circle with a dozen members of a tribe. The siblings were almost at the edge of the camp when Kishori heard Avonico's voice again. My children, they are cannibals. Kishori stopped. She seized her brother's hand and pulled him back into the darkness, covering his mouth to stop him from crying out. Her heart pounded in her throat as she listened. Children, yes. Ate my wife, their dear mother. I fear that they have become monsters. Now that they have consumed human flesh once, they hunger for it again. The people around the fire gripped their weapons tightly. Their bodies tensed as they scanned the woods, looking for these monstrous children. Avonico sat back, satisfied. Now that he had the first word, no one was likely to believe two children if they refuted his story. Kishori shrank into the shadows with Kakanui. Her eyes glowed with fury and loathing as she stared at Avonico. He had betrayed their mother, and now he had betrayed them. He could not go unpunished. Coming up, the siblings get their revenge. Now, back to the story. Kishori and her little brother Kakanui had been betrayed by their father yet again. First, Avonico had murdered his wife and fed her flesh to his unknowing children. Then he had spread the word that they were cannibals so that none of the tribes in the area would trust them. The siblings wandered alone through the wilderness, searching for food and shelter. 
but Kakanui was just a small boy, and Kishori had been a lazy girl and had never learned how to care for herself. Soon, they were on the brink of death. One day, after foraging unsuccessfully for hours, Kishori fell to her knees in frustration. She knew they would not survive much longer on their own. They needed help. Please, great spirit, you saved us from my mother before. Will you not also save us from starvation now? But all that answered her was the wind, a cold wind at that. The siblings shivered. The woods were dark and the trees loomed over them like giants. Moonlight cast shadows everywhere they looked. Kishori looked back toward the camp, thinking of the tribe with their weapons and their hysteria. It was not safe here. She and Kakunui found a hollowed out tree and crawled inside, snuggling together for warmth. The hours passed and Kishori began to cry. She cried for her empty stomach, for Kakunui who depended on her and her parents who had abandoned them. She wept until she could weep no more. Kishori awoke the next day to Kakunui shaking her. She pushed him off in annoyance, but he continued until she looked up to see a wolf standing a short distance away. It stared at them with yellow eyes. Kishori looked away. As Kakunui nudged her more, she shook her head. Stop being a nuisance, brother. I am sick of you always prodding me. Why should I look? I have nothing to kill it with, so we would do well to just let it eat us. We deserve it after what we have done. But Kakunui continued to prod her. Finally, she sighed and looked. As soon as her eyes fell on the animal, it collapsed to the ground. It's dead? How is this possible? It must have been ill. Maybe the great spirit heard me. Come, Kakanui, we have work to do. The two skinned the wolf with Kishori's root dagger, and that night they feasted. Kishori ripped apart the meat with a fervor, thrilled to fill her belly with the fruits of her own effort. That night, Kishori dreamt of the future. She dreamed that they'd erected a small lodge that sat in the shade by a roaring river, and that Kakunui was no longer a petulant child, but a young man. So vivid was her dream that when she awoke the next day, she expected to see the home she'd imagined, but it was just their campsite, and Kakunui, still a boy, was fast asleep despite the shining sun. She sighed. But something near the river caught her eye. A great tree stretched over a patch of land, giving shade against the sunlight. And at the edge of that patch, close to the river, was the very lodge she saw in her dream. She jumped to her feet. Kakunui, wake up! Wake up! She roused Kakunui and pulled him toward the lodge. 
Without hesitation, the siblings rushed through the door and across its threshold. We are home, Kakanui. Can you believe it? I cannot. When Kishori turned to look at her brother, the young boy she'd entered with was nowhere to be seen. In his place stood a strong young man. Kakanui? <laughs> yes, sister? Why do you look at me like that? And why is my voice... Why is my body... Why is everything different? <laughs> it is like my dream. This must be the work of the Great Spirit. Amazing. But it is strange that I would change while you remain the same. Not so, brother. I may not look any different, but I feel that I have changed a great deal. I am sad to say goodbye to the girl I was, but I no longer fear what will become of us. Over the next few months, Kakanui and Kishori became skilled hunters. Soon they had collected more meat than they could eat, their bellies were always full, and they looked after one another. But Kishori was still troubled. She lay awake at night, thinking of their mother and the man who killed her. After all he had done, Avonico was still out there, safe and content. It was not fair. Kishori felt rage boiling in her heart. She closed her eyes and tried to sleep, but she could not. Instead, she imagined two great bears ripping apart her evil father. A smile played about her lips as he cried out for mercy, but she would give him none. Finally content, Kishori drifted into a peaceful sleep. The next morning, the siblings gathered their weapons and prepared to go out to hunt as usual. But as they stepped out of the lodge, Kishori froze. Two bears stood at the edge of the clearing, watching the lodge. Kakanoi tensed and reached for his bow, but Kishori stopped him. She went back into their lodge, reappearing a moment later with a pouch of dried meat. She threw the scraps at the bears. They leapt on the meat hungrily, devouring it in an instant. Do not fear them, Kakanui. The Great Spirit has sent them to help us. Help us with what, sister? Kishori closed her eyes. She imagined a raven swooping down to retrieve a scrap of meat. She saw it flying into the sky towards Avonico's new tribe. She saw it miraculously speaking, telling the people in Avonico's camp that there was food nearby. She imagined it telling Avonico he was special and that he would go last so that he could enjoy the remainder of the feast. When she opened her eyes, a raven swooped down to grab a slab of meat in its talons. Kishori smiled as its wings drove it quickly through the sky and out of sight. They did not have to wait long. The raven had done as she imagined. The tribe that had been so ready to slay the siblings now came to them with their hands out, desperate for the meat that they'd been promised. Kishori and Kakanoi smiled generously as they gave what they had. 
When the last tribesmen had gotten his meat, they looked around expectantly. Avonico was nowhere to be seen. But finally, a figure stepped out from the forest. It was Avonico, strong and well-fed. His children tensed. I do not believe my eyes. My children! I have been searching everywhere for you! I, I was lost on a hunt. When I returned to our lodge, you had gone. You silly children. You did not wait for me. We did not know where you had gone. Ah, uh, yes. Well, uh, my son, how you have grown. I, I almost did not recognize you. Father, it is good to see you. Please have some meat. Oh, you are generous. I am immensely proud to have such generous children. Shall I take some buffalo? There was a time where Avonico's pride was all that Kishori desired, but his words had little effect on her now. She simply nodded and watched as Avonico helped himself to their meat. As he did so, the two bears stepped out from the woods, they slunk closer to the unaware Avonico, and with each step they took, their impatience grew. Their breath came out in snorts, hot and persistent, as they eyed Avonico, their prey. Avonico dropped the meat in his hand at the sound of the earth-shaking roar. He slowly turned to see the two bears looming above him, hungrily licking their chops. Their black eyes were locked on him with an uncompromising leer. Avonico suddenly lunged toward the forest, scrambling to evade their grasp, but he was not quick enough, their talons slashing at his chest and their teeth sinking into his flesh. His screams filled the air. But his children did not move. They watched without joy or sadness as their father met the same fate as their mother, disappearing into the belly of another creature. Once they had eaten their fill, the bears lumbered off into the woods. Kishori watched them go, entwining her hand with Kakunawi's. She eyed the beasts thoughtfully. Bears that would now, no doubt, have a taste for human flesh. The siblings continued to reside in their lodge, living off the forest and utilizing the magic that nature had to offer them. But Kishori found that her power diminished over the years, for she no longer needed it. Just as she had learned to survive without her parents, she soon found that she could take care of herself and her brother without magic. She was enough. Stories about disembodied heads returning from the grave appear frequently across Native American cultures. Often the transformation into a terrorizing head is the product of forced cannibalism, producing an unsettled soul that becomes monstrous. 
The chase of the severed head is filled with horrific imagery, but beneath the more startling components, it's a story about a girl reaching adolescence, discovering the strength within herself by conquering obstacles and learning to step out of her parents' shadow. While the girl's revenge on her father is merciless, the gravity of his crime calls for punishment. Though she's grown in power and perspective, she realizes that there's no moving forward until the past is dealt with. It's a sign of her maturity that she chooses to face it. There are many Native American tales about orphaned and mistreated children, which usually entail supernatural forces coming to their aid. The magic here is indicative of the Cheyenne's link with nature and demonstrates the power of the Earth's divine essence, the Great Spirit. It's significant that once the children are abandoned by the parents, it is the Earth that steps forward to care for and support them. In the end, they cannot merely rely on the Earth, but must reach a state of balance with it. By finding power within herself, the young woman's strength becomes another one of the Earth's treasures. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the chase of the severed head, amongst the many sources we used, we found American Indian Myths and Legends by Richard Erdos and Alfonso Ortiz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every Wednesday we dive into another dark, classic tale. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic story. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Mythology was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, and Taylor Jackson Ross. I'm Vanessa Richardson.